0: Welcome to the Old Past Podcast. My name is Pastor Benjamin Hicks in London, Ontario, and I'm joined today by my guest. First, Michael. I want to introduce yourself, Michael.
1: Hi, I'm Michael Spangler. I'm a minister in Greensboro, North Carolina,
2: and I'm happy to be here tonight. Wonderful. And Cody, you want to introduce yourself? Hey, My name is Cody Justice, and I live in West... ...Family...
0: And you just came off the hunting
2: trail, I see. <laughs> you know, I noticed that uh, it's not intentional. This is actually a work shirt, and I was, just, oh, I look like a bit of a hunter. <laughs> so,
0: all good. I think it's, it adds to the ensemble very well. So, uh, thankfully, you could be here as well, Cody. And uh, today is a very exciting uh, episode as we return to our series through the merit theology by William Ames. Sure, our listeners will call that uh, what we've been doing is working through this great work of theology what we've been doing is going through each chapter uh, as he unfolds a different doctrine and uh, reference to christian life of faith and practice the life lived to god, god. We began by considering the life of William ames and then uh, we began to consider the early chapters which Speak of the nature of theology and, and the nature of faith. And, and now, what we do is we come to the fourth chapter, which has reference to the essence of God. Really, chapters <laughs> four and five both have to do with the doctrine of the chapter four, the essence of God, and, and chapter five, the subsistence of God, which especially unfolds, unfolds the doctrine of the Trinity. And uh, maybe a good uh, introduction to this section is I'll just read number one in the beginning of chapter four and the proceeding out with faith.
3: Logic now requires that we deal with angle from which uh, Ames is going to
0: approach this subject for Ames, and really for the way it should be for all Christians as well, is that the study of God God is not some intellectual curiosity, and it's not simply uh, done in order to indulge in any vain speculation, but as it concerns uh, our faith and our devotion. And uh, maybe as we get started, I'll just ask you brothers to be comment, good. beginning with you, Cody, and then Michael. Well, when, when we think about the doctrine of God, do we really think of something that can be practical for Christian devotion? And uh, did you personally find this chapter overall as being helpful in stimulating uh, Christian devotion in particular? What did you think about that, Cody?
2: I don't know if many people do initially think of the doctrine of God as something that's readily uh, practical. Certainly I think that it is. If we understand that practical extends beyond uh, external actions, there's praise, there's thanks we can render unto God. We can meditate. Uh, upon these things that god reveals of himself and in that sense i certainly think uh, it's a practical doctrine and um, i did find it i did find it helpful he makes a number of distinctions here and even on just the four pages i think is what it is i am coming across this pattern with aims now we're in our what was this the fourth chapter, where even though it's it's short and concise, it's nevertheless dense. Um, even just particular paragraphs, he can pack a lot into it. Um, so certainly, I've I've found it useful and and um, stimulating to to thought in, in a number in a number of ways. Um, I was trying to find something here toward the end because I just read this when we got home. Uh, I was out with my family and I briefly refresh myself on this. Yeah, I can't remember. There was something I wanted to raise. Maybe I'll I'll see if I can find it. I'll see if I can find it later. All good, cody What do you how about yourself, Michael? What do you
0: think about this matter of the doctrine of God and and Christian devotion in a practical sense? Well I think if most
1: Christians thought about it for a little bit, they'd realize of course God is the foundation of the whole Christian religion as well as all of Christian practice. And it makes sense then that meditation on God would be the beginning of all of our Christian life.
3: It's a fuck.
1: God himself speaks that way. For example, when he comes to Abraham in Genesis 17, 1, and says, I am the almighty God. He tells him a fact about himself. Name. Walk before me and be thou perfect. The duty of life and the covenant of God is rooted on the very being of, of and nature of God Himself. A very practical illustration of this is we see in Isaiah six that it's the vision of the holiness of God in his temple that gives to Isaiah that humble and broken with which he falls down and says, Woe is me. And
3: it's on the basis of that then that he is called into the ministry. It's the cool. truths about god that the bible teaches that are foundational for all
0: of
1: our christian life
0: amen michael i think that's that's a, a wonderful one. exhortation for us i just want to read uh beginning at number seven am says this what has been revealed of god suffices us to live well and he quotes deuteronomy twenty-nine, twenty-nine. The things that are revealed are revealed to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. In the next paragraph, what can be known of God are his sufficiency and efficacy or working power. These two are the pillars of faith, the basis of consolation, the incitement of piety, and the surest marks of true religion. I think just, that's just uh, a very helpful way to begin this whole discussion. And what we're going to see is that the entire first book concerning the faith of the life of it to God is divided into two sections: uh, God and His sufficiency, and God and His efficacy or works. These two chapters we're considering now on the essence so of the subsistence of God. Of God. Uh, are are considering God with reference to His sufficiency as the God of salvation and comfort, and so uh, that's going to be, be the, the framework through which he approaches it. And I think it's um, it's going to guard us against some things something that I think may um, tempt us from the beginning, and that is that, that we may think that, that this is all dry and philosophical, which is it ought not to be if we're considering it prayerfully and, and with a meditative spirit. And the other matter, of course, is, is that um, it, it can be an occasion of a sort of pride, pride or, or vanity. I, th- I think sometimes it can plague people who study this, uh, be, and precisely because they're not approaching it with a spirit of devotion and awe and fear of the Lord. And So I pray, listeners, as you undertake the study with us, that that would be what the Lord grants you as well, as well as us, as we consider this. Now, um,
3: maybe I'll, oh, I'll come
0: back, back to you briefly.
3: And that has to do with, with maybe the a, a, a discussion about the. Could you maybe just explain for our listeners, what is classical theism? What are maybe some of the alternatives to... So, I would summarize classical theism as a recognition that the truths
1: about God's existence and his attributes... Are taught by both scripture and nature and that we ought to be able to argue them from both the scripture of course is the much clearer revelation and it's the only one that is sufficient for salvation scripture teaching things in addition to those doctrines that nature does not teach for example the Savior and faith in him the way of salvation which is not taught by nature. But God in his wisdom did make certain things clear in nature, and this brings many different benefits. Paul summarizes that in Romans 1.20. He says, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. And then he explains what he means by these invisible things. Even Godhead. And then he explains one purpose that God did this. They are without excuse it's very useful to understand eternal power and godhead being what we're going to speak of it, attributes or perhaps attributes in existence but they are visible from the creation we can talk more about that in specific if we get time Also, cool reasons so that they are without excuse in their teaching in acts 14. In Acts 17, Paul is speaking to pagans, and he cites their own poets, perceiving the same God, though not by Scripture,
3: and agreeing with some of the Two ways of knowing God through Scripture and nature. Scripture is the only saving way,
1: but nature speaks the truths of God that Scripture does as well. So that's a basic doctrine. Now I don't, from what I can see, think much about the natural of God's existence and attributes. But one thing He does do that is a mark of what's usually called classical. Uses reason and philosophies not to replace scriptural language but to have it.
3: Now, all people, whether they would say it or not, would say we have to come to scripture to know the language or that a good translation is written to have the ability to think. So we have to
1: have our mind fitted out with categories of thinking, categories like words we'll use here, being, existence, attributes, substance, subsistence, and those are all philosophical words. Perhaps they're not the most complicated sort of philosophy, but they are philosophical words. We have to know what they mean and have sound definitions and usages of them. Pascal recognizes that
3: and embraces it and is glad to use the contribution. By in our help to help us in understanding God, the scripture or the way
1: in the Christian faith as unbelievers, but it is a recognition that we gratefully receive truth wherever we find it and help us
3: think in a way that helps us also think about God. A word we used for people who would deny the things I've just said would be biblical. At the time, denying reason as a source of knowledge
1: but they have a real problem in what i read in romans 120. how is it that a man who's never read the scripture can be without excuse if he couldn't have known god some other way how could god condemn anyone at the last judgment who had absolutely no way of knowing him apart from the scripture because and they never read the scripture never heard it never had a preacher and yet god will justly condemn them because they saw god's son they breathed god's air They knew God's kindness and they had a brain and a conscience that were equipped by God and though harmed greatly by sin, still not entirely unable to see him. At least they knew him enough or could have known him enough that they are now without excuse and will rightly be judged forever for their unbelief. The Biblicist has no way of responding to that. I could go into the ways they do. They're not satisfying. So the sum is that God gives us scripture as the only saving revelation, but there are certain truths, especially about God, his essence and attributes that are revealed in nature. We access them by reason, but that reason also helps us in coming to scripture and learning about God and teaching about him.
0: Thank you so much, Michael. I I think that uh, that is an extremely helpful survey of the issues involved here. I think it clarifies it very well. But I'm just wondering, do you agree with what Michael said and how he differentiated those two? And maybe if people have not been following um, discussions about some of these issues in, uh, in recent decades, can you think of, of uh, any um, anyone who might be contesting what Michael is saying and what they might be, uh, what their concerns might be?
2: Uh, just a point of clarification, Benjamin. The two things that uh, you see, Michael, as distinguishing. Do you mean Scripture and nature?
0: Scripture no, I'm and nature. Yeah, I'm, and and that was my my poor phrasing on my part there. But I was just speaking of the biblicist point of view and the classical theist point of view. I see. So I think that's a good. Ex- I think you a good explanation of that. And maybe you could just explain why is it, it that some, some people, people would shy away from, from the, the classical theist theory. approach? <laughs> explain.
2: Yeah, I. From the limited exposure I've had to some of these things, maybe I listen to a podcast or I'll read something online or in a book. Um, it, It seems to me the biblicist does have a good desire. They want to be faithful to scripture, but maybe they've not meaningfully thought through some of the things that they have to bring with them to scripture which even michael raised which is your 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 brain reason and um, they're even going to have their own sort of philosophy if you will and categories so they're really it's kind of inescapable using reason in that way Um, i've seen or heard i should say i think james white try to like redeem the identity of Biblicist. Um, and I i don't recall specific words. It's been a few months now, but I distinctly remember him responding to uh, some of these controversies that go on online and in, in, in other places, and certainly seemed to be trying to redeem the idea of Biblicist. And um, I think that it's equivocal in the way, at least I've understood it, which is exactly how you know, Michael has has defined it as distinguished from the classical theist, which is that someone who, they don't like uh, using Aristotelian categories or words and distinctions, for example. So like our discussion um on covenant, we say there's the substance of the covenant and there's the administration of the covenant. Well, that goes back to essence and accidents. That's an Aristotelian distinction, and it does have a high pedigree, and we don't use it simply because it has a high pedigree, but because it's true and it's useful and um, it helps us properly categorize things in Scripture. But I've seen pastors say, no, you're imposing that upon the Bible. It doesn't belong there. In fact, the man I distinctly remember, um, I believe his pastor, Robert Trulove, uh, with great respect to him, he said that you know, you're imposing those distinctions upon Scripture. And, of course, he's a 1689 Federalist. Um, so i'm i'm aware of that distinction i would have leaned um biblicist years ago but having read parts of turiton been exposed to other men um, i've been challenged in my thinking and i think that the, the classical theist way is is it's the really the biblical way if you if you want to try to redeem biblicist and say, well, what does the Bible hold forth? Well, it does hold forth these categories. Michael cited them from Romans 1, from Acts and other places, Psalm 19. It's there. God is revealed in nature, and you can use reason to know true things about him from nature outside of Scripture. Scripture itself speaks of those things. And just um, to mention one name I've heard thrown around that I've heard men say it's very useful. I've got his book. I've not read it yet. The book is uh, All That Is In God. And the, the man's name is James Dolezal. I've heard I've heard one or two men say maybe overstates here or there, but in the main, very good. But the general consensus I've heard is that that's an excellent book. I've not yet read it, but I, but I yeah. want to.
0: Yeah, I, I have uh, read that book myself, Goody. I, I personally found it to be quite helpful. Um. Yeah, and so I, I think that if, if you want, want to understand, listeners, some of the, the debates of, um, that have gone on, if you read that short book, I think uh, Dr. Doll is all will well, at least introduce you to the the main the parties in the theology of, who have but, advocated for a more of a biblical approach to the dark God, and perhaps some of the departures from sound uh, historic right. orthodoxy that have come that. I think that's a good resource. Michael, I want I want to maybe give, give you an, an example of a case where Ames is using some philosophical categories. I'm um, quoting from uh, paragraph 19, 19 and 20, uh, 19, and 20. 20. Um, no, actually 18, 19, 19, 20. So let me read beginning at, at paragraph 18. Now, because we are not able to take in this essence, that is the essence of God, in one act of comprehension, it is explained as manifold, that is to say, as if consisting of many attributes. They are called attributes because they may more reasonably be said to be attributed to God in the literal meaning of the words than to be in him. These attributes are God's act. Single, most pure, most simple, hence the nature of the divine the attributes may rightly be described in the following uh, proposition, propositions as consequences. So, um, a number of things there, but I just want want to speak about this idea of God in His essence as the pure, pure act or actus purus. I think is the, the Latin way of, of putting that. That has uh, a whole history within the um, Tradition of classical theology. theism, and my understanding is that it's not
3: unique to Reformed
0: theology, um, but would would have a a um, precedent within Roman Catholic theology, um, and even um, some uh, theologians in the Jewish uh, camp, like Maimonides and uh, even the uh, even the uh, the Muslim tradition as well. And so maybe, maybe I'll, I'll ask you this, Michael, um, is a concept like that of God is pure act? Is that a concept that we can uh, we can say is compatible with biblical Christianity? And um, what would you say to those, those people, people who might say, well, this, this is, is coming, coming from from philosophers like Aristotle, and it's not something we should endorse?
3: Hmm.
1: I think if it's well understood, it's certainly a biblical concept. But it also is useful to use philosophical terms. I don't think as far as terms go, this one is nearly as difficult as people expect. It's just not in our common speech to say this way. But the point is that there's nothing passive in God. So act, you could perhaps translate it as action. The idea is that Everything is always actualized or put to work, if you want to say it in God. These are, of course, human ways of trying to express his infinite perfection. But the point is nothing in God is waiting around or idle. There is nothing about God that is waiting for something to press a button and get it started. This is all the way to say that God does not depend upon the creatures. We're the opposite. There's much in us that's passive. You know, we have to be pushed and prodded and encouraged and built up. There are things we could do, but we're not doing because we need external stimuli. And that's part of our dependence. It's part of being a creature. To say that God is pure act, or here that his attributes are one most pure and most simple act in God, is to say, that none of them imply that he is passive in the least. Which is useful because we have to use human terms to speak about him. And those human terms in their normal use often do speak of things that are passive. When we say, for example, that God is angry, that he has wrath. In men, wrath is something that happens to us <laughs> almost as much as it's something that we do. In God, wrath doesn't happen to him. He doesn't get angry. He is angry every day. As the Bible says, the very presence of sin stirs up in a human way his anger, but in such a way that he remains exactly the same as he was before he was angry. We can speak of his works changing in time, but the worker does not change. He is one pure act. There's no potential, no passivity waiting around to be actualized.
0: Thank you, Michael. And and I think that uh, if that seems difficult for us to understand that, I think you need to, uh, as Michael has has helpfully done, think about what the opposite of that would would mean, right? Uh, If we would would say that um, in the same way that we we, were overcome by uh, external circumstances and and something was conjured up in us, right? right? Like anger or joy, right? Then uh, that would be a relationship of dependence upon the creation, creation, which is something that's that's normal to us. And uh, you may be thinking, if you're listening, well, that's only something that's philosophical. has no, no reference, right? I'm reminded of the uh, no reference to our practical life. I'm reminded of the Sermon, Sermon on the Mount, where uh, chapter 6, Christ is referring to how the, the Pharisees pray, and, and they do so in order, in order to be seen of man. Um, he says in Matthew 6, verse 8, Be not ye therefore like, like unto them, for your father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask <laughs> And the, the thing about that is, it's stretching our even our understanding of what it is to pray. But the point is that it's it's not as though God even knows needs our prayers in order to know what. He's so far above and transcendent over his creation that he can't be brought down to our, to our level, brain. And I think if you if we're through this chapter, that is really this the service of this. Uh, the, the point of this doctrine, I should say, the purpose of serving, serving in his argument is trying to fill the reader with awe, awe and wonder at how utterly different God is in that respect where they are. the property of passivity is not found in him, and therefore not dependent upon the creatures. And I think that for that reason, even if um, unbelievers uh, have affirmed that, we ought not to discard it in order just to to distinguish ourselves. If it's a true principle and one that I think can be verified through sound, sanctified reason uh, from both nature and scripture, I think it ought to be affirmed. Yeah. Any, any response to all All that Cody? It was a lot to, to think about there.
2: Well, what comes to mind is that, I mean, it sounds like to me this, harmonizes well with god's immutability he does not change i the lord change not he says and also his aseity or aseity i've heard it pronounced different ways his self-existence um that he's dependent upon he's dependent upon none so maybe from a different angle i suppose if you accept immutability and city then is it not harmonious to also accept um, this this idea as well, this doctrine as well, that God is pure act? Uh, it seems to me the answer to that would be yes.
0: Thank you, Cody. And it's, it's something that, um, yeah, it would be worth reflecting on, but it would be good also to look at um, more aspects of of this chapter um, so let me uh i think something that's closely connected with this would be the um way in which we speak of the knowledge of god right that there is something of god's incomprehensibility that follows from his from his nature and essence which comes through very strongly in the open section of this um, Particularly in uh, paragraphs two to six, uh, this is brought up very well. So let me uh, read those for us here. A selection beginning at paragraph two. God, as He is in Himself, cannot be understood by, by any save if. Himself. And he quotes from First Timothy chapter six, verse sixteen: "Dwelling in that inaccessible light, whom no man has seen or can see." as he has revealed himself to us he is known from the back so to speak not from face and he quotes there from Exodus 33 verse 23 of revelation moses where god says i can't see my face he is seen darkly not clearly so far as we in our ways are concerned since the things which pertain to god must be explained in a human way manner of speaking called anthropopathy is frequently used. And because they are explained in our way for human comprehension, these things are are spoken of God according to our own conceiving rather than to his real nature. We cannot know him otherwise as we live now, nor do we need to know him otherwise to live well. So I I could be wrong, uh, but I think it's language like this that sometimes makes people uneasy about classical theology. What we're speaking about is, yes, God reveals himself, um, but there is a a difference uh, from God as he is in himself and how he's revealed himself to us. um, As it's spoken of there, the language that we use of him, right, is often anthropomorphic or it's um it's it's not properly predicated to god or spoken of him but it has more with reference to to human creatures so that that, uh, that would be one thing that might raise concerns with people so michael what what would you say to people who would say look at that and say well would would the danger perhaps be that we're coming to the scriptures and we're we're being encouraged to think Poorly or or untruthfully about God. Well, I'd like to give two answers.
1: One is, you don't want to misunderstand what's meant here by anthropopathy, or sometimes it's called anthropomorphism. We're not saying that the language we used use about God is improper in the sense that it's incorrect. It's improper in the sense that it's not totally adequate. To God. It doesn't apply to God in the same way as it applies to men. But it is correct language and that in it is a truth expressed that is true of God. So take a clear example I trust all can agree on. When the Bible says that God is a rock, we understand that when you speak of God and the rock, you're speaking of two very different things. But we also understand that it's right to call God a rock. Not because of almost anything about the rock, except for what's intended, which is his stability, firmness, strength, and the fact that we can build ourselves upon God as we would build a house upon a rock. So there's a practical weight to it. All those things are truly and quite powerfully communicated by a rock and yet i hope all christians would agree that properly speaking god is not a rock
0: that's a, that's an excellent example michael and i think um one of the things that may uh, we may not want to avoid falling into if, if we are studying theology on this level is depreciating or uh, being overly fastidious about well, the ordinary language of christian piety scripture itself norms us to and so um in our prayers in our preaching in our devotion and our uh, in our theological reflection um the uh language of, of christians ought to be normed by scripture and here, that's a clear example where, where we speak of god we're speaking of what is in uh, compared to, in compared to us, right? A rock is much more stable, much more enduring. It seems to be eternal. And when we would confess that God is our rock, we t- we at the one point say, yes, he is uh, like this, but at the same time, recognizing that he is he so much more than that. Or when we use the language of the Psalms about taking shelter in the sh- under the shadow of his wings, right? We're not yes. therefore saying that. God literally has wings, and yet the protection that he affords to his people may properly be referred to in that way. And as those those words those and those concepts are sanctified by the Holy Spirit, Spirit for our instruction, and they yeah. are pointing us towards realities that really, really transcend all, all of our perfect um, univocal thought, as though we could come up with language that was exactly parallel to the transcendent perfection of God. Uh, I think we, we were forced to the, this conclusion, right? If it were otherwise, right? If we had to speak about speaking language, that uh, perfectly comprehended God as though we could contain him in our minds, right? We'd be left with a God of our own imagination, but in his condescension to us, as Calvin uh Refers to, to speaking to us in baby talk, right? Proper to our our ability to receive his truth, right? We receive true statements about him and his salvation and and his relationship with his people. Um, but at the same time, he he phrases it such a way so that we're we tempted to imagine that we that we've uh, utterly. Um, uh, brought them down to our our level, as though we've somehow uh, encapsulate all there is Just to say. About- I think. Am I am I getting at a, 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 at the, the the right balance there, Michael, or do you think I'm I'm off there?
1: No, I appreciate what you're saying. I really do. If I could add one more thing, uh, you've hinted at it. Is that if we don't have this language, not only as you say, are we not able to speak about God, or at least not without heresy? When we try. It's that we. We will. Yeah, I guess you did say it. We will fall into heresy. Without doubt, without this category. And men who refuse this idea or mock this idea of anthropomorphism. They do fall into heresy. They say, well, the Bible says that God repents. And that means that God changed his mind. God has changed. So. Yes, we say God God is immutable, but we also say that God changes. And how do I reconcile those things? I have no idea, but that's what the Bible says. And if you classical theists try to solve the issue, you're just rationalists. Well, again, go back to the rock. So do I have to assert that because God's a rock, though I can't understand it, therefore he's made of granite? Or that he has all the attributes of the rock? If that's not true, then it's not true regarding God's repentance either. God speaks of repentance as a powerful way to describe his mercy, that in time, he moves from threatening judgment to removing it. And repentance is such a powerful thing, not only to draw us into the knowledge of God, because we know what it is to repent, but also to call us to mimic God. Because when we change our minds and turn from evil thoughts or the intent to harm others out of mercy, we have to repent. We do have to change. And so this is all very practical language as well as accurate and useful and descriptive language.
0: Very helpful, Michael. Cody, let me put this to you, to you right? If, if um if if we take this theology seriously, right, would would you, as you think about it, feel as though so your relationship, relationship with God be impaired? if there is some clear um, distinction in an absolute not say an absolute sense, sense, but if there if there is a, a sense in which all of our language of God is in inadequate fully comprehended in that we are forced to speak of him through anthropomorphic language. Would you say that, that our, our ability to have a genuine relationship with him would be imperiled, and could you understand why people would think that, and, and how would you help people if they, they had that thought?
2: Well, I think many of the things both you and Michael have, have said um, would be worthy answers to people who are worried about that. Um, I don't think that it's in danger at all. Now, if sin attends these things, then certainly there can be danger. I think Paul, he says, knowledge puffs up. Um, So knowledge must be accompanied by love, by humility. Certainly in my own life, if I've grown in knowledge of theology, I know there have been times I've been tempted and probably have fallen. Uh, to a certain pride, and the Lord in his mercy has rebuked me, and I pray he continues to do that, but I don't think there's any problem at all, Um, maybe if I could just read question and answer from Thomas Cartwright on that same idea of God repenting, Uh, he says, is not God in diverse places of scripture said to repent, answer, yea or yes, But this is spoken of God only tropically or tropically and improperly, because upon the change and alteration that is in men, he useth often to change his work, and therein seemeth to do as man doth when he repenteth. Whereas in truth, he, that is God, never doth anything but that which he hath determined so to do from all eternity, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. One of the things you have to have too is you. I do think you have to have a, a not a, an absolute master knowledge of Scripture, but at least a, a basic grasp, so that you don't end up um, making Scripture A over here contradict Scripture B over here, and that's part of part of the problem I think that sometimes people have, even like the idea of Christ, um, the Lamb john the baptizer says behold the lamb of god that taketh away the sins of the world he's not a lamb it's the god man two natures in one person god and man and yet that picture of lamb is very true of him the spotless substitutionary atonement for sinners and it's a precious picture so we can have these distinctions they're not enemies they're they're friends and i think the lord gives them to us and he expects us to use our brains um and to pray for help from the Holy Spirit to make these distinctions in service to our piety and our, our love for him. So no, I don't I don't think that there is in itself any problems. I could see where problems could come, but I would always attribute that to sin myself and not to these distinctions or these this language.
0: Thank you, Cody. I think that's that's very helpful.
2: Excellent quote from Cartwright.
0: I'm glad you you brought that in. Since we're, we're dealing with some of these questions, Mike, uh, I wanted to ask you a question that I, I have seen raised by some theologians, theologians of, uh, recently in a reformed camp. And that has to do, do with, with the way in which we can speak of the, the wrath, of the hatred of God. Okay. Some of them even suggested that we ought not are, to speak about God. Having hatred or wrath, and uh, I just just want to to quote quote what uh, James says in paragraph 62 near the end. Um, The affections attributed to God, scripture, such as love, hatred, and plague, are designated acts of the will, applied to God only figuratively. You say that. Ames is getting close to that, the idea of that there is no actual hatred in God, or would you say that if you understand it properly, uh, that's very far from?
1: Well, there is a right way to understand this phrase that there is no wrath in God. But the wrong way would be to deny scriptural testimony to his wrath or to diminish the need to preach God's wrath to sinners who are very close to having it fall forever on their heads. And that would be a travesty and a great unkindness toward dying sinners. We do have to understand it correctly. So there is no wrath in God in the sense that wrath is not an attribute, most properly speaking, though I spoke loosely about that earlier. It's holiness that it is an attribute. It's justice that it is an attribute. Those things are Attributes of the essence of God, that's who he is, it's what he is, to speak more properly, and that never changes. God can't be more or less of any of that without stopping to be God, stopping being God. Wrath comes as a next step, so to speak, as an affection of God's will, because he's holy and because there's sin if sin had never existed, there would be no wrath. There'd be nothing to be angry about. Holiness might abhor the idea of sin, which God could think of as the opposite of his perfections. And yet there is no actual sin or sinner to be angry at. But given sin and given the sinner and given God's perfect holiness by which he is naturally averse to all sin, And his righteousness, which is opposed to sin, sin being the breaking of God's righteous law, and the need then by his righteousness to see sin punished, there cannot but be wrath in God. We make a distinction between God's essence and his will, but his will is based on his essence. And in the fullest sense, they are one because we're only speaking of one God who is indivisible so god does exercise his affection to speak in a human way of hatred against sin and indeed in a sense he must it's not necessary in the sense that his essence is necessary but given sin a holy god cannot but be angry at it and then it says we make the distinction between um the so he said as you read they designate acts to the will. So that was our explaining. Or they apply to God only figuratively. That is also true of wrath when it's considered as a human affection. And I explained that earlier. That wrath comes upon us. We get angry. We lose our cool. It's certainly a passion. And that would be the opposite of an act. And God is only act. And so when God gets angry, to use scriptural language, And Scripture is very free in speaking that way, speaking of the boiling rage or the flame of his anger or um, just as on the other side his compassion grows warm and tender. God is not telling us that he has changed. There is a change in his works, according, as we heard from Cartwright, to the change in the persons before him. We changed. We went from holy in Adam to sinful in Adam when he sinned and god is accordingly angry but he has and is the same god as he always was he doesn't get angry as if we forced his hand or changed mm-hmm. him and the exercise of that anger according to his will was determined according to his wisdom from all eternity
0: yeah. Of course. that's that's very helpful michael and i think that um it, and and again, I think it's helpful to think about what would the op, what would be the opposition to that entail, right? If we were to say that, uh, in the same way that we quote unquote fall in love, right, quote unquote are are brought voluntarily to a point of anger, right, then we're we're talking about we as uh, creatures that are dependent upon the creation and are subject to. Um, the weakness and frailty of human nature, uh, even if we don't consider the sinful aspect of the of those things, right? Uh, and it, as as you say, thinking about the loving purpose of God, His mercy and grace towards His people—that is not something that is just fickle or changing, right? But from eternity, it's bound up with His own infinite wisdom and counsel to bring glory to Himself through Christ christ's work and to do so without any respect to the the changing circumstances of time or chance or anything like that uh, it's, it's it's found only within himself right? and in the same uh, yeah and i suppose whereas there is a certain freedom in that way and that god was not required to save his people and to uh, glorify himself through the revelation of his mercy. Yeah, as, uh, it does seem as you were saying that, given the presence of sin, he cannot but oppose that completely and, and infinitely with his his will and with his his being. As uh, as you were saying so well, I think that um, yeah, the, that doesn't bring us to the point where we depreciate. The, the revelation of scripture. But we realize that when you when you would reflect on it, you see it's much more terrifying in terms of his hatred and wrath than could possibly be imagined by us. And at the same time his love and mercy and grace are so much more wonderful than we can imagine because they're not bound by that finitude and weakness and changing uh character that we that we ourselves are. Hmm yeah any comment on on that
2: Cody yeah well just to, your last point there um let me bring it up here I think it's Ephesians three nineteen and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge there's there's a sense where it's it's ineffable you can't you can't do it justice with words and in one sense Uh, so maybe that's another defense here of this idea that we're using accommodating language and that it's lawful to have and to use uh just one more thing here from cartwright may be useful he asks the question what is simplicity or singleness in god answer it is an attribute of god whereby is noted that everything that is in god is god himself and therefore he is uncompounded without parts invisible impassable all essence whence it is that he is not only called holy but holiness not only just but justice etc and there he's got exodus 33 19 and 20 where the Lord's speaking with Moses. Wonderful. So well, I think we're moving towards we're our conclusion here. Uh, obviously,
0: we, um, you can see, see we're, we're only scratching, scratching the surface. It would, be, it would be very profitable to do a number of episodes on different attributes that are unfolded here, some changeableness, infinity, all these things. But I think what, what might be helpful well, uh, on our final moments here, Michael, Is if you would speak speak to those who want to understand um, perhaps the relationship between this work, this chapter, and what Ben Maastricht does in his second volume of his uh, systematic theology. My understanding is that that there's some similarities, uh, but obviously it takes a whole volume to go through what Ames does in one chapter. So um, Can you uh, uh, briefly tell our our readers what would they find if they were to do a comparison between between the two theologians? Is there an influence there?
1: I think it's just as you described. It's much longer, so you'll find much more detail. One small example of that is in the definition he gives of God's um, eternality here. If I can find it... Um, let me find yes 48 god is eternal because he is without beginning and end so that's from Ames. well master trick explains more that he's not just without beginning and end he's also without succession there's no change of moments in god one minute after another he stands above it all like a man standing on a mountain and seeing the whole river at once whereas we Creatures are standing in the river of time. So there are many examples like that where, of course, he has more time to explain. One particularly notable thing, though, is that Ames assumes the existence of God. And Maastricht, though he of course believes it, does not assume it, but argues for it. Now, that's fine. We always have to assume things, especially when we don't have time to speak at length. But I would encourage readers, if you want a reformed example of arguments for the existence of God, not speaking of Aquinas or a Papist work, but a solid reformed example of rational arguments, as well as scriptural arguments, for the existence of God, Maastricht meets atheism head-on in the early chapters of Volume 2, and makes many arguments. And the sum of it is that following Paul in Romans 1.20, his eternal power and Godhead are evident. Master argues effectively that all the content of the Westminster Shorter Catechism question four, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth are all evident from nature by reason. And one way he helps prove that is by showing how they all are necessarily and logically interconnected and interdependent so that one attribute depends and needs the other logically. That is, I find a very useful thing to think through. And though our faith does not rest in reason to have the help of reason in our faith is a great confirmation and it will strengthen your faith if you have time to read it
0: yourself. Thank you so much, Michael. Just want to uh, quote from uh, paragraph 45 where Ames uh, talks about the infinity and the measurability of God. And he says in uh, paragraph 45, hence faith does not look just for a certain measure of blessedness to be communicated by God, but an immeasurable glory. Mm. Just uh, little applications like that I, I really find helpful. And it's also what I appreciate about Van Maastricht that I haven't completely read blind to yet, but um, when, I've, when I've gotten into it, I have found it very helpful in integrating those practical applications um, to encourage our faith. So I, I uh, would echo your commendation of that work i think we're going to be uh, bringing it to a close i know we've only sort of skimmed the surface of this relatively short chapter but i really commend it uh, to our listeners my uh cody did you have uh any anything that uh, you want to draw to our attention is particularly helpful before we draw to a close
2: or uh or did you have any reflection on something that we've, we've already said I give a hearty amen Think to what Michael said. Thankful for all those things he raised. And um, I'm glad you raised that from point 45. I do believe that's the, the one I was looking for earlier. That stuck out to me a lot. Uh, it's not just a blessedness. It's the glory of God, which we're going to behold. Um, I just simply think of the verses right here in front of me. Exodus thirty-three twenty. Uh, Thou canst not see my face. For there there shall no man see me and live. And yet we know the Lord Jesus Christ says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Hmm. We will behold his glory. And that's a wonderful thing. I look forward to that.
0: Wonderful, Cody. Thank you for that. Any closing thoughts, Michael?
1: You know, these things really should make us worship God. Say with Asaph, whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If we truly know God
0: as he's revealed himself, that's what we'll say. Amen. Praise praise God, Michael. That's a wonderful way to close. I can't think of any further Thing to add to that. Craig of uh, listeners that this episode has been a blessing to you and uh, please continue to pray for us we work serious. Until next time, God bless.